This is the last of our uh, Mark series, the last sermon in the series of Mark. Um, we separated the book into two pieces. So from the beginning of, the, of this book to uh, chapter 8, verse 30, and then chapter 8, verse 31 to the end of the book is basically like a big kind of middle point, a big middle fulcrum. Um, and we'll pick up the rest of Mark in the autumn, and next autumn, we're a series called The Suffering King. Um, but let's maybe just briefly have a look over what we talked about. By the way, Claire is the one who painted this and has done this slide, which is great. So if you see her, tell her she's awesome, because um, she is. Uh, so these are kind of the uh, sermons that we've already come across. And some of these things that we've learned so far is, well, one, we started looking at how Mark starts his gospel. In the very first verse, this is going to come up in a bit, um, Mark says this is uh, the good news, the gospel um, of Jesus the Messiah. So at the very beginning, he's talking about um, the Messiah, the king. We talked about how Messiah means king, and Jesus doesn't come in a way that many were expecting. Um, also, Jesus shows himself to be king, and the kind of king he is is one that brings wholeness to people who really need to be whole. That's what we've been talking about. Holiness is uh, wholeness, and those are kind of like synonymous words. And that means he's going to be hanging out with people who need to be whole. He's hanging out with the sinners, the outcasts, the depressed, the burdened, the burned out. And he spends his time teaching them about himself and healing them. And what he does as he's doing that, he's gathering together a people that will continue in that work with him. To be with Jesus means to be sent by him. It's just kind of what he's about. That's what he does. And so next autumn, we'll be picking up um, the second half of Mark as Jesus uh, faces the cross and goes through the cross and uh, the resurrection. Uh, now, Mark is the story of one king, and that's how Mark starts his gospel, the story of Jesus the Messiah. But many kings have come and gone. Um, but Jesus is the one that is still ruling now. He's still a king with a kingdom. Another one of these rulers that have come and gone is Pharaoh Ramses II, also called Ozymandias. It was used in a poem by Percy Shelley. We might have heard some of this before. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. This is a, a king who's lived like thousands of years ago. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So a king thousands of years ago is, it has this kind of placard kind of saying like, look, behold, look at my works, ye mighty, in despair. But what the poet is writing is like, nothing remains. There's a colossal wreck, capital W, wreck. Nothing but sand. And this is just over 3,000 years ago that this pharaoh lived, which isn't, I mean, it's a long time for us, but in the grand scope of things, and like the length the earth has been around, is a blip. How many other mighty kings will rise and fall? Kingdoms that might feel grand in the moment, but giving just a little bit of time, nothing beside will remain. King of kings? Not really. So who will be our king? A king is supposed to be good news for their subjects. It's supposed to be good because a king is supposed to bring progress. A king is supposed to bring hope and freedom. Where will we put our trust? What will we hope in? Who will be our king? We will serve that which we believe will bring us what we want. That's what we serve. And we want meaning. We want belonging. We're hungry. We want food. We're blind and we want to see. Who is our king and who do we serve? Bob Dylan rightly saying, you got to serve somebody. A religious person will serve religion and all its works because a religious person believes doing good things has a power to make one good. Religion 
can be fundamental versions of Christianity, but it can also be militant atheism. A political person will serve a certain political party or agenda because they believe a system like that has the power to make one good, and that can be left or right. So we can all hide behind ideology. I mean, think of how that works out in the political world. Everyone, you, can, you have the most radically liberal people espousing one kind of ideology and the most like, nationalistic people espousing another, but in, the real, like, in real life, do their lives look very different? No. They use money the same way either one does for themselves. They probably use sex the same way either one. Sex is just pleasure for myself. So in reality, the separation between individuals and the most radically different political parties, it's negligible because we're really all the same. I mean, the Me Too movement's a helpful picture. Everyone from the most conservative to the most liberal Hollywood types shows that we're really all broken. We have to serve somebody, and that somebody, if not Jesus, will let us down and will leave us broken. Also, at the same time, we look out there and are let down. All of us think we are the kings up here. I am the king of kings. And our little patch of life is our own little kingdom. But the problem is that we're hungry. We're blind. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. And we let ourselves down. On Instagram, we say, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. But instead, we feel despair ourselves. I mean, so many studies have shown the more time you spend on Instagram, the more depressed you get. Nothing beside remains. So without Jesus, this life will always let us down. Our lives will always be a colossal wreck, capital W wreck. Jesus is the king we need. He sees us hungry, he feeds us. He sees us blind, he gives us sight. He sees us navigating this barren spiritual wasteland, lost to ourselves, and gives us something worth living for. So without him, we're left hungry, blind, and though we might live comfortable lives, we're left without meaning. We talked about this a little bit last night. And this comes up again in this chapter. <coughs> so three things that we have the time to focus on this morning in this section is that uh, Jesus feeds all, Jesus opens eyes, and Jesus, the surprising king, gives us something worth living for. He feeds us, he opens our eyes, and the surprising king gives us something worth living for. Let's start with that first section that he feeds us. We've been here before. We've seen a miraculous healing before. Thousands of people, they're hungry. Um, I mean, these people have been like three days without food. They're about to pass out. They want to hear Jesus' words and they don't have any food, probably also because they're very poor. And um, Jesus takes what's like a meager offering of like a few loaves, a few fish, and all of a sudden everyone gets fed. This is amazing. This has happened before. And, um, and maybe the disciples get a bit blasé and a bit passé with it. Um, <coughs> but there are some interesting aspects to this feeding. Um, and by the way, we're talking about, we're going to look at some of the details here. Just as an aside, myths do not have details. Like, there's no myth that has ever existed that has detail. Because a myth isn't, isn't telling a historical event. It's telling a, a larger kind of broad story that can be retold a bunch of times. But a real historical event that's um, like a biography or uh, a historical account or um, journalism, they contain details for a reason because they're talking about something that actually happened. And one of the reasons why these details are in here was so that people who were reading Mark's gospel could go back to that place and talk to either those people or their families and be like, tell me what happened here. 4,000 people, what, what in the world? Now, we can't do that now. It's been a little bit of time. But the details here are still really important for us, and they give us um, some good little nuance into what's going on here. 
Because where we are here in, in chapter 8 um, comes from uh, the previous chapter. In chapter 7, verse 31, it says that they're in the region of the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory. Gentile means anyone who's not Jewish. Uh, the nations is another way that's described. Basically, you have the Jews and you have everybody else, and that everybody else are the Gentiles. Gentiles are not clean, um, so if a Jew who was clean was in contact, prolonged contact or a certain kind of contact with a Gentile, they would become unclean. So the Jewish person had to like, go through all these rituals to clean themselves. Um, so there was, it, oftentimes there was a big separation between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. But we know that Jesus is kind of tearing down those separation, that, those walls. Because even in the previous chapter, he heals uh, people who are Gentiles. So, um, I, and, and, all, and also what we see here is because the Gentiles, they now seem to be getting the same offer as the Jews, the same kind of healing, the same kind of teaching. That means Jesus isn't just a king over Israel. He's not just concerned about a, uh, a political or um, nationalistic or uh, ethnic kind of boundary. Jesus is, is offering himself to everybody. He isn't a king, he is the king, offering redemption to more than just Israel. There's a difference between a, a lowercase king and a capital K king. And so we have, so he's doing this uh, m miraculous thing in Gentile territory with Gentiles. Um, and also, uh, we get this really interesting response from the religious leaders. What do the religious leaders think of Jesus doing this miracle in front of everybody? Well, they ask him for a sign, which is really weird, because what has Jesus been doing? Like, I, I just fed 4,000 people. Yeah, but I mean, but can he give us a sign though? Like, what in the world? Well, they knew where Jesus had come from, though. They knew he came from the Gentile territory. Uh, and they know those miracles. And basically, they're saying, either, Jesus, you're not enough, or, Jesus, what you're doing, we don't like it. Kind of get in line with what we think you should do. So, you be, uh, this is a, a, an, an interesting detail that Mark has. He says, they ask for um, a sign from heaven. Now, a sign from heaven, as opposed to a sign from God, could mean something where they're asking Jesus to come in justice, in, in judgment against the other nations. It, it could mean that um, they're asking for, uh, the Israel, for the Israelites and the Jewish people to be held up and everyone else to be obliterated. It was kind of like the hope for the Pharisees. They've, we've been under oppression for so long against this Roman government, like now it's time for us to have, this is our time now. This is what the Messiah is going to do. The king is going to come establish this kind of, kind of new political reign or something like that. But that's what Jesus was about. He didn't come in judgment. He came that all people might have life. And the kind of king the Pharisees were expecting was one that would set themselves above, above others. But Jesus, again, in his surprising way, reverses that. And also, a sign in addition to these miraculous events, what they're looking for is some kind of grand public declaration that God is with Jesus. That there's some kind of legitimacy there. But Jesus doesn't bow down before the request of them or really any leader. He does what he wants to do. So even though it's hilarious, right after a miracle, to be like, oh, that's great. Can you give us a sign? I mean, really, what's the problem with their request? Well, they're speaking to God, asking him to prove that he's God. Saying we we don't think like you're God. Can you just like prove yourself? What else has he been doing? What, what what's he been doing with his life? It's not that he hasn't given a sign. It's the signs that he's been giving are not what they expected, not what they wanted, and they're blind to it. 
is right now they are staring at the Great Pyramids in Egypt, shouting, you look really great. If you could just tell us what you are, just like, what, what shape are you? Because I don't get it. They're just like staring at the thing or going to the Grand Canyon and just kind of like looking at it and muttering to themselves, well, if only there was something here to tell us what to look at. Well, I guess we'll get in the car and go to whatever else. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous talking to the one who the sign is all about asking for a sign. The Pharisees are not satisfied with Jesus is doing. They are not surrendering to Jesus. They're ordering him to submit to their program. So Jesus says, no sign for you, like the soup Nazi, he's done, he's out of it. Um, and in verse 13, it says that he left them, he got back into the boat and crossed over to the other side. So he physically leaves the Pharisees. They ask him for a sign and he physically leaves. That was a Seinfeld reference, by the way, for anyone who didn't get what the soup Nazi was about. We can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> so it happens when I go off my notes a little bit. Um, but no sign, no sign for the Pharisees. He leaves them. He, he, like, uh, he, just, he, he has this, this thing that um, you've all heard from your mom before. Ugh. He sighs deeply. It's like, they just don't get it. Oh my goodness. And then it, he just leaves. It's like, why does this generation look for a sign when I'm here in front of you? So now on their way to the other shore, away from the Pharisees, the disciples forget to bring bread. Man, these disciples are just not very good with the bread thing. They, this is a problem that we see reoccurring. They've got to get, I don't know, some kind of uh, COO organizing over their bread situation. But Jesus uses their lack of bread as a teaching opportunity. He says, watch out for the yeast of the religious and the secular leaders. And Jesus, of course, is speaking in spiritual terms, but the disciples, like us, don't get it. And they think he's just talking about literal bread because they're all materialists. They believe life is only what they see with their eyes, what they have on their hands in the moment, so they don't get it. They think he's scolding them because they forgot to bring bread. This guy just made bread come out of like for 4,000 people, for 5,000 people. Like, and the way Mark writes, it's like 5,000 people, 4,000 people. And the disciples are like, oh man, he's mad at us because we didn't get bread. Like, what? It's like they, do, they just do not get it. It's not an intellectual problem though. It's not a lack of brains. It's because their hearts were hardened is what Jesus says. Our frozen hearts is what keeps us blind. That's what keeps us deaf. That's what keeps us dumb. Jesus is like, weren't you just recently witnesses to like some pretty amazing miracles, if I say so myself? And who picked up all those extra baskets, all the leftovers? Like, oh, uh, we did. What about that second time when I fed 4,000 people? Who picked up all that extra stuff? Did, did you guys pick it up? It's like, yeah, we did. And what, you still don't get it? Like they're just completely not even on the same page. He's asking them, do you still not yet see? But before we move on to how Jesus brings sight to people who need it, I want to look at verse 15, where he says, Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So Jesus is warning that the disciples don't get. I don't want us to miss it. So we're going to kind of look at this for a second. Um, this is what makes Jesus so surprising and still does. So we have the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Yeast doesn't take very, you don't need very much yeast for bread, just a little bit. And he's basically saying, like, watch out for that to get in you, because there's a big problem that happens. Um, so what, what is he meaning here? Well, I made a little handy chart here. Um, one, okay, the religious side, the yeast of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees uh, is religious. Under religions, there are expectations of traditions. Acting a certain way, individual good works is what makes us good. And generally on this side, we're going to find more conservative types. 
And here are also conservative religious institutions like churches, militant Christians, atheists, Muslims, the Chorlton Facebook group. You know, the idea that individuals will save ourselves. Hope is in the individual to come through. On the other side is the secular or the irreligious. This is the yeast of Herod. Under the secular, there are similar expectations, but under the name of progress, that's defined in a very kind of narrow sense. Progress looks like this. This is what it's about. The hope is in a system to save the world. So then you will find, on this side we find generally, one side was more conservative, this side is more liberal. This is where political institutions live. It's also where liberal churches live. It's, um, if we could just set up the right system, that is what's gonna fix everything. That's where our hope is. And this is where nationalism and leftist liberalism live in the same place. Obviously those are like politically two very different, but the hope is that this system is going to save the world if only this system works. And then that means, your enemy is, is either the left or the right, and it becomes very kind of um, entrenched. And that's also, we see panic when that system gets disrupted. I mean, in America, when Trump got elected, 49% of the country just went into complete and utter panic. Because, oh no, our system is completely broken. I mean, the Brexit vote here, what was that like? I mean, it was like complete panic. And Jesus opposes both of these things, religious and secular, both of them equally. He rejects the religious leaders as strongly as the political leaders, and both were opposed to him, and interestingly, both worked together to kill him in the end. The religious leaders went to the political leaders, and they both conspired together to kill Jesus. So meanwhile, all of us, because we're all stuck in this ourselves, we all just see the bread that we have in our own hands. We do not get that Jesus is about something more than we can see with our eyes. It's about the religious works I have done or the political program I feel passionate about. You know, in the early church, when Christianity wasn't legal in Rome, when it was really hard to be a Christian, what impressed the Romans wasn't the disciplined religious observance. In fact, it was the opposite. Re Christians were called atheists because they didn't participate in all the religious kind of observance. And mighty Rome, all that Herod is a metaphor of, or the oppressive state, the, just think of how the most impressive state that has existed during this time is, is trying to zero in and stamp out this very small, tiny faith community that has been um, mockingly called Christians. That follows this kind of unknown guy from this backwater town of Nazareth. His name was Jesus. Mighty Rome. Have you ever visited Rome? Has any of you guys visited Rome? You can see all the stuff. It's still there. It's really cool. It's right in the middle. I was there for like an hour while we were doing other stuff. Well, the, this Colosseum, that was the image of everything that could be hard, everything that could oppress and stamp out this small little faith community. It's in ruins. You pay a few euro and you can tour it. It's not mighty anymore. It's a colossal wreck. A laughable image of how earthly powers, religious or secular, all end up. And some say religion is king, others say politics is king, and Jesus surprises everyone and says, I am king. Jesus doesn't care about our religious works, our political program, our own agendas, because he's more inclusive than that. And anyone with any background is free to come to the king. But where does this disrupt you? Where does this disrupt us? Do you find yourself more on that religious side or more on that um, secular side? probably we're a mix of both. You rely on yourself to make things right, and you also put your hope in secular systems to make things right. Now, Jesus isn't saying that those things don't matter, but he's saying, I am the thing that matters most, and all those things must bow down and come under me. 
So we don't try and strike, strike some kind of balanced middle, be like a little religious, a little political. No, we put Jesus above everything and everything else has to surrender to that. It might be that you find with some things you are religious. You believe that basically people have it within themselves to change and if they don't, then um, it's because they don't want to. And that means really you wildly overestimate your will and wildly underestimate God's grace in your life. You become self-righteous and you think, or maybe even say, man, if only they just got it together. You miss out on joy and of understanding the love that God gives you. You look at the bread in front of you and you need your eyes to be lifted up. Or maybe you find yourself, you're irreligious as well, you're secular as well. Hint, like we all are, all of us are secular. We all are living in that world. What we believe is we need a system to set things right, politically, spiritually, a church even. Even that can be an idol in itself. So the enemies in this world are those who oppose our system, the political left, the political right, religious left, religious right. Instead of caring for the culture God has given us, because we have enemies like that, we go in as a warrior instead of a cultivator. It's an us versus them kind of battle. I mean, how did you react towards Brexit? Were you utterly depressed or incredibly overjoyed. I remember the day after the vote, I was in Starbucks and it was like the whole city felt like it was in a lull. Everybody was depressed. The thing that I heard, like overheard people talking about was like, what does this mean for our children? It was kind of like complete, utter, um, uh, just lack of hope. Now, why did we have such a visceral response to that? I mean, obviously it's important to get those decisions right and they're going to have consequences. But why did we have such a visceral response to that? Did we put too much hope in what politics can give us? Or do we have too much fear in what politics has, the power that politics has? When did we have such a visceral response to God's mission in our lives? I think often we don't have that response to God's mission because we think God's mission, which is the hope for all humanity, is really just a slight add-on to our lives and we're okay to engage with it or not and we can kind of just kind of get by. But in 2,000 years, the Brexit vote will be just as much of a ruin as Rome in itself. So I hope as we look at our secular and religious tendencies that we're all driven a bit to despair ourselves, not to stay in that spot, but to realize the things that we put hope in aren't gonna give us the things that we always want. And in that desperate moment, we realize that we are blind and we need someone to open our eyes. And thankfully, the next story in Mark is a little bit more hopeful because Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. Um, and he, he encounters a blind man. He's off, he's left the Pharisees, encounters this blind man. We've seen Jesus give sight before. This is not something new. But again, we have these really interesting details. In verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand, by himself, walked out of the village, had this very personal one-on-one -on -one encounter with him. It's personal. And this man, it wasn't like automatically he was healed overnight. There's, there's a, a stubborn kind of blindness. There's a process. It's different than other healings that we've seen so far. It's not automatic. And at first, this man sees people um, but he says they look like trees. What an interesting kind of turn of phrase. I see people, but they look like trees. At the least, this probably proves that this man wasn't born blind because he knows what people look like. He knows what trees look like. Um, but then after Jesus places his hands on the man's eyes, so the second time, everything is restored. And he has this phrase, he saw everything clearly. He saw everything clearly. Um, did this man's good works bring about sight? 
Was perfect attendance on Sunday like the reason for his healing? Was he part of a new exciting social program put on by Herod? No, we encounter the king. The king brings wholeness to the most stubborn of blindness in the places where we need it the most. This man went from blind to seeing because of Jesus' personal encounter. His hands were literally on this man's face. I mean, when I first got glasses, I had gone much longer than I should have. I kind of just put it off and put it off and put it off. And my doctor kind of chided me a bit because he's like, you've been driving for this long without him? I was like, yeah, but if I squint, I'm pretty good. And Christina was like really scared. She's like, man, how long has he been driving, especially at night? But when, uh, it's not, not good to get glasses if you need them is the moral of the story. Um, but when I did get my glasses finally, it was amazing. I was like, wait, you can see leaves? I thought like leaves were just kind of like things. That you kinda, oh yeah, there's probably leaves there. But you can see like the detail on trees and, and I, you, I, I can see Ross who's sitting back there now and the lights that are twinkling in the background. I mean, um, it, it, if you ever get, first get glasses, it is kind of amazing. But think of this guy was blind. He knew, he knew what things looked like when he couldn't see them, and now he could see again. That's amazing. And he saw everything clearly in verse 25. What kind of person is Jesus? Who does this? Who could possibly have the power, the capacity to heal somebody this way? And not just that, this one, I mean, he's feeding the needy and all sorts of things. And not just the power to do so, but the seemingly imprudent and reckless use of that power. He's feeding all sorts of people. He's healing all sorts of people. He doesn't seem to be requiring very much of people. He just gives it away so freely. What was this man's religious beliefs? Do we know? Did Jesus interrogate him? What were his political persuasions? Jesus is all-inclusive, but his kingship, his personal encounters are necessarily exclusive. So he's welcoming everybody, but the one-on-one -on -one encounters have to be with Jesus. Because Jesus is king, nothing else can claim it, and only Jesus was the one who was able to heal. And these five verses of Jesus healing a blind man are like what it's for all of us who have been changed by Jesus. We were blind, we were relying on ourselves and other systems to save us, and Jesus bypasses all of that. He doesn't go through that. He bypasses all that, goes right to us personally. Even in our stubborn lack, in our, in our stubborn um, unbelief that we cling to, he still pursues us and gives us the wholeness that we need. Nothing else, nobody else can offer this. So the story thus far, the disciples don't see. Jesus gives a man sight and he sees everything clearly. And now we come back to the disciples and Jesus grants them sight as well. Or we kind of culminating in Jesus being the surprising king. The disciples see clearly, or at least one of them does. Jesus asked them, uh, what do other people say about me? Like, what's, the, what's the, the hubbub about? Like, what are people saying? And they give some kind of responses, and then Jesus makes a personal, like, well, what do you say? What do you say about me? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. And this, <laughs> this is the moment that Mark has been, like, leading up to from the very first verse of his book up till now. The very first verse Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the disciples, up until now, have not got it. And now someone gets it, even for a brief moment. So we have uh, ver uh, chapter 1, verse 1, eight chapters later, details of like 13 plus miracles and all sorts of other miracles that happen. 
We, they are seeing teaching with authority that no one's ever seen before is coming from Jesus. The religious leaders are amazed. Crowds are amazed. Disciples are amazed. All sorts of amazing amazement going on. People gathering to this point, to the point of, of passing out because they want to hear these words. They're literally not eating because these words are their life. And finally now there's a glimmer of faith. But even in this glimmer, a few verses later, Jesus calls Peter Satan. He's like, get behind me, Satan. One minute, calling him a king, the next minute, not acting like he's the king at all. Surely that's a familiar experience for us. So Peter, the first to speak, bless him, as he often is the first to speak, rightly calls Jesus the Messiah. And we've talked about what Messiah means already. It means king. And Jesus being king isn't just a political boundary. His kingship is one without end, without borders, and lays claim to the whole world. But if he's a king, that means he has to have a kingdom. A king without a kingdom is just a guy who thinks he's something. I guess it's really nothing. But a king, a real king, has a kingdom. And we've talked a lot about what, the, what this kingdom looks like over these eight chapters in Mark. Now, Jesus is surprising because he doesn't come in the way anyone expected, but he's also surprising because of the kind of kingdom that he's making isn't what people have expected. Jesus brings wholeness in all his forms to all who seek him. Physical healing, spiritual healing, wherever there's lack, wherever there's desperation, wherever there's a need, Jesus is there bringing wholeness to all who seek him. Sometimes people bring themselves, sometimes they don't, and their friends bring them along. And anyone who trusts in Jesus, however way they're kind of brought, he gives them what they need. In the book of Luke, Jesus summarizes his mission by using the words of Isaiah the prophet in Luke 4. He says this, he says, God's spirit is on me. He has chosen me to preach the good news to the poor, sent me to declare freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened free, to announce that this is the time when God will welcome us with open arms. Jesus is still on this mission. This is like the mic drop moment. Jesus gets up into the synagogue, he takes out this Isaiah scroll, he reads it, puts the scroll, drops the mic and sits down and everyone's like, oh my goodness, what is going on? This is like the announcement of what Jesus is about. And Jesus is still about this all the time. It's not like it was, oh, in that one moment, that's what Jesus was doing. He's still doing this. The miracles that Jesus did, people still receive their sight. But in, in even more beneficial ways, spiritual sight, our hearts are opened. People with burdens find freedom. People who are guilty are now pronounced clean. When us who are poor get to hear the good news. When God welcomes us with his open arms. The Redeemer is at work building his kingdom in his time and in his way. And sometimes it's surprising. We didn't know we were going to be up here in Dulcimer. And yet here we are. And there'll be many more surprises to come. So who do we say Jesus is? Some say Jesus is a good teacher. Some say he's just a story to make us feel better about ourselves. Some say he's a good man that the early church tried to co-opt for their own kind of power. Some say he means well, but isn't really capable of doing anything. It's just a good kid story. Still, others say he's the king. And it's one thing to say it, but it's a whole other thing to believe it and to live it. That's a radical move in our world because it means rejecting religious and secular kingdoms and tendencies within ourselves and surrendering wholeheartedly to God. It also means it's going to take time. Whether it's a stubborn blindness for this man who was eventually healed or the whole kind of eight chapters in Mark before we get just a glimmer of faith, 
within ourselves and within others, even on the church level for us. We need to leave space for change. It takes time. It takes space. And can we be a welcoming family to people who don't have it all together yet? To people who, when we see them, we feel like when Jesus encountered the disciples, like, ugh. And we have those, like, deep sigh moments. Ugh. Like, are they ever going to get it? You know, that's how Jesus feels with us. And he's, he's, he's patient with us. He takes his time. I hope we can be a family to people who don't have it all together yet, because I don't have it all together yet. And I know from all of you, you guys don't either. You're fantastic, but I'm sorry. You just don't have it all together. The more space we give in our own lives for God to work, the more patient we are with him, the more we're going to be patient with others in our lives. And a wholehearted surrender, that takes a lifetime. We shouldn't expect it to be an overnight action. But the benefit to this long obedience kind of life is something that we can't buy, it's something that we can't create ourselves. It is a life of meaning. It's a life worth living. Following Jesus isn't easy. It doesn't make problems going, go away. It's not a path towards comfort. In fact, you'll probably have more problems and you'll have more discomfort in your life, but that's how we get a life worth living. A meaningful life comes through hard things. We can collect all the things, have the best family, the best friends, the best job, but without Jesus, we will not receive good news. We will not get out of our prison. We will stay blind and burdened and we'll never take advantage of God's full embrace. And as good as we might be, as good as our lives might be without Jesus, we will never be able to give good news to the poor. We will never be able to call people to freedom. We'll never witness the blind see for the first time. We'll never experience burdened, bent over people get to stand up straight. And we can never call others to be embraced by God. The life of meaning is the life of following Jesus. But how does this change even take place? How does, how, does, how does it even begin? Can prisoners just be not guilty? Can blind people, how do they see? If it's not up to our individual work or the work of a system, where does this change come from? Well, I think the key to this is in Mark 8.14. If you have your um, Bibles, if you can open up and, or swipe up or whatever you have to it. Um, 8.14. Mark, again, it's another detail level thing, says something really interesting. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. What a strange way for Mark to write. Mark said, the disciples have zero loaves. And then he said, except for that one loaf. What's he talking about here? Well, there was a loaf of bread in the boat. Jesus wasn't chiding them because they forgot to bring bread. Because there was a bread there. Bread that takes care of any lack the disciples could ever think up. Because Jesus is the bread. He's all we need. He's our ultimate hope. The way Mark is writing is saying Jesus was there with them and they're still looking for something else. His rise to kingship is good news for us because it means we don't have to place our trust in how good we are and how well we do and how we have everything together. We don't have to place our trust in government systems or social systems. We could be the most able people set in the most perfect of environments and still feel hungry, still not be satisfied. But everyone who eats this bread is full. This bread is a symbol of being able to see clearly. It's a symbol of allegiance to the king. And eating of this bread, allegiance to the king, means we put him above everything else. And when we fail to do so, we come back to him and ask him to have compassion. Ask him to realign our lives with him and give us what we need. 
So the way that change comes, the way that blind people see or the way that poor people respond to good news has been a plan that was decided since the world has even existed, since time even existed. The plan was for God to have for himself a people that he loves and for his people to live that love for others. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always worked together towards that end. It wasn't just Jesus, it was the Trinity working together. And so to do that, God the Father sent the Son to become like us, take on everything broken on himself. The Son relied on God the Holy Spirit to help him with this task. So he was born, he lived, and he died. And with his death, he put to death all our guilt, all our shame, all our misplaced hopes, all in our self-reliance. And because death couldn't keep him down, he rose again, and through his resurrection, we get that power of that new life in us. We're made new creations, and now God himself, the Holy Spirit, lives in all of us as we surrender to the King. So what is the king up to now? What a king does is he rules, he reigns, and that's what he's doing now. Jesus came as king on earth in a surprising way, just as he said he was going to. The most surprising thing this surprising king did was to see us in our needy and our guilty state, to have compassion on us and take our spot, to trade places with us. He went to the cross, he died, is now ascended, ruling as king over our world. And that's why we eat, and that's why we drink. Because this symbol, this bread, is a symbol of the bread that was in the boat that the disciples missed. It was broken for us. May we not miss it in our lives. And this wine and this juice is a symbol of the blood that Jesus poured out in our behalf. Poured out so that we would never experience the death that he experienced. Everyone who sees Jesus as king and follows him is welcome to come up here. Uh, you don't have to be an official part of Redeemer. Um, but if you haven't yet promised allegiance to King Jesus, this table is not for you. This table is for everyone who has, who their prime allegiance is Jesus. Of course, we mess up with that. But this table is for everyone who has decided that they want to follow Jesus. And for everyone who comes up here, as we come up here, when we eat, when we drink, um, let's think of this. That through Jesus' work on the cross, we are forgiven, we're accepted. And through his resurrection and ascension, we're created as a new person. Now with the power of God himself in your life. So that means our past is, is new, our future is new, and our present is new as well. So we are forgiven, we're accepted, we are a new person with God's power in our life. Glory to the king who came and took our place. The one who has given up everything so that we might be included in his love and in his mission. Let's pray.